turbulent times call for clear-headed insight. That's hard to come by these days, especially on TV. That's where we come in. Salem News Channel has the greatest collection of conservative minds all in one place. People you know and trust, like Dennis Prager, Eric Metaxas, Charlie Kirk, and more. Unfiltered, unapologetic truth. Find what you're searching for at snc.tv and on Local Now Channel 525. 62 CP, Bayonet Point, WTBN, Pinellas Park. Portions of this hour have been pre-recorded for broadcast at this time. Up next is Verse by Verse, sponsored by Verse by Verse Ministries. These verses that introduce the book were given not only the setting, not only the structure in a sense, the setting of the book out of which the book arises and and from that the structure, but were also given insight as to what made Nehemiah such an effective servant and leader. These four verses really set the stage for the rest of the book. They're very, very important. In fact, if you miss these four verses, you don't understand the book. You really won't understand the background of the book. So what I'd like to do this morning is first go through these verses, and as we go through it, uh, I want to explain the situation, the historical basis, the setting. From there, we'll see the theme and the structure of the book, and then I'd like to go back over them again a second time to learn the qualities that made Nehemiah such an effective servant. Those four verses Pastor Steve Kreloff just referred to are the beginning of a great book on leadership. Our bookstores are loaded with books on the subject, and none of them can compare to this one, Nehemiah, that God has preserved down through the centuries. Welcome to Verse by Verse. Pastor Steve is the teaching pastor at Lakeside Community Chapel in Clearwater, Florida. Today, we will begin a new series about the man Nehemiah and the book that bears his name. The response I often hear from people who, for the first time, begin to study Nehemiah is usually something like, Wow, I've never read that before. This is a great book. That was my response, too. Perhaps the word leadership makes you think this book is not for you because you are not a leader. I would encourage you to follow these lessons closely anyway for two reasons. First, Nehemiah's life shows us a great deal of valuable truth, whether we are in official positions of leadership or not. Second, you are probably a leader whether you think you are or not. We have a lot of things backwards about leadership in our culture. Cal Thomas told about a man of tremendous faith in a church he once attended. Cal said, His wife is an alcoholic. His daughter has psychological problems. He was often in poor health. Yet, week after week, he never complained. He always smiled and asked how I was doing. He faithfully brought to church a young blind man who had no transportation. He always sat with the blind man, helping him sing the hymns by saying the words into his ear. That man was a Christian leader, if ever there was one. Let's be ready to learn now as Pastor Steve opens up one of the great treasures of the Old Testament, the book of Nehemiah. How would you like to read a book that gave instruction on the following subjects? This book told you how to organize your time, how to set goals, how to uh, plan your work schedule, how to motivate others so that they worked hard and they and they accomplished what they wanted to, what they needed to. A book that told you about dealing with an overly touchy and sensitive uh, boss. 
A book that taught you how to pray when there's no human solution to a problem, pray and get answers to your prayers. A book that taught you about balancing God's sovereignty and human responsibility, which is not always easy. A book about handling opposition and resistance and criticism. A book about accepting success without having it go to your head. And a book about facing and solving really tough, tough problems. Now, a book that could tell us all of these things and so much more would certainly be of value to, to us as we serve the Lord Jesus Christ. Because in serving Jesus Christ, we often face challenges that, that really seem overwhelming at times. The challenge, for example, of having enough time to serve him. Do you, do you struggle with that? I do. It just doesn't seem to be enough time to, to do all the things that we'd like to do. And there always is enough time. It's a matter of how we use the time that we're given or the challenge of a boss who isn't sensitive to your Christian commitments. You want to be active. You want to be serving. You perhaps would like to go home early and do some things, get involved in the church. And but he's not sensitive to that at all. Or the challenge of people who criticize you and uh, even resist your service to Christ. After all, you're trying to do a good work and uh, you're doing the best you can. And, and yet there's criticism and there's resistance even in the church. We understand when the world does that, but in the church, and you're wondering about how to deal with that so that you don't punch somebody's lights out. You handle it the Christian way. And then the challenge of motivating others to catch your vision. You've got a great burden for a ministry. You've got a great burden for a vision. Only you're the only one that has that. And you try as you as you can. There's a great challenge for others to to see that and catch it and, and run with you. Or the challenge of um, of really knowing what is our responsibility and what is God's responsibility. I mean, where where does God step in and I step out and I step in and, and God controls and how, how does that all work? Those are some of the great challenges we, we face in serving Christ. Now, if you struggle with these types of challenges in your Christian life, then be encouraged because God has written a book. He's given a book just for you. It is called the book of Nehemiah. Yes, the book of Nehemiah. And this morning, I'm glad to say we, we begin a study of that book. The book of Nehemiah is found in the Old Testament. It is between Ezra and Esther. And I suppose if you're not familiar with it, the best way to find it is go to the Psalms. That's easy to find. And then go back three books. You'll find Job, Esther, and then Nehemiah. Now, even though it's located, it's about the middle of the Old Testament, somewhere near the center of the Old Testament, you want to be careful that you understand where it takes place in, in Jewish history, in biblical history. The book and its events took place at the end of the days of the Old Testament era. So don't let that mislead you that, that it's found in the middle of your Old Testament. The book really, if you were going chronologically, would be about, the, uh, about Malachi. It'd be the end of the Old Testament. In fact, Malachi was a contemporary of the man Nehemiah and these events going on. It, it is the last of the historical books of the Old Testament. It is a significant book. So even though it is an ancient book written about 2,500 years ago, it has amazing lessons to teach modern man about such things as spiritual leadership, and spiritual service for the Lord. Because the man, Nehemiah, models these qualities throughout the book. 
against great odds, Nehemiah demonstrates how to lead others effectively and how to serve God faithfully. It is an ancient book with modern lessons. And I think that perhaps the best way to introduce it, the best way for you to understand the book and the man who wrote it is by examining the first four verses of this book. And so I hope you found Nehemiah right after Ezra, just before Esther. Psalms go back three spaces, okay? Let's begin by looking at Nehemiah chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hekeliah. Now it happened in the month of Kislev in the 20th year while I was in Susa, the capital, that Hanani, one of my brothers, and some men from Judah came, and I asked them concerning the Jews who had escaped and had survived the captivity about Jerusalem. And they said to me, the remnant there in the province who survived the captivity are in great distress and reproach. And the wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are burned with fire. Now it came about when I learned these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. And I was fasting and praying before the God of heaven. In these verses that introduce the book, we're given not only the setting, not only the, the, uh, the structure, in, in a sense, the setting of the book out of which the, the book arises and, and from that the, the structure, but we're also given insight as to what made Nehemiah such an effective servant and leader. This, these four verses really set the stage for the rest of the book. They're very, very important. In fact, if you miss these four verses, you don't understand the book. You really won't understand the background of the book. So what I'd like to do this morning is first go through these verses. And as we go through it, uh, I want to explain the situation, the historical basis, the setting. From there, we'll see the theme and the structure of the book. And then I'd like to go back over them again a second time to learn the qualities that made Nehemiah such an effective servant. So let's begin by looking at the historical setting and structure of the book. In verse 1, we read this, the words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. Now it happened in the month of Kislev in the 20th year while I was in Susa in the capital. And the story, the story opens up in a very unusual way for an Old Testament book. If you're familiar at all with the Old Testament, you know that most of the Old Testament books were written by either a prophet or some great spiritual leader, a, a, a Moses, a Joshua, a, a David who were really prophets in, in that sense too, uh, but were leaders of the nation. And also in most Old Testament books, uh, the book tells us about the events that took place in the land of Israel. I mean, generally they're about the land of Israel, Esther being an exception. But this book is different for two reasons. Number one, Nehemiah was not a prophet. He was not a prophet or a religious leader. Now, God used him as he wrote this as in a sense of a prophet and, and uh, an inspired writer, but his ministry was not really prophetic. He was not a priest. He was a layman. And I use that term properly. It would be in one sense improper to say today somebody is a layman, although we use that for communication uh, amongst ourselves, but we are all laymen in that sense. We, there is no dichotomy. There's no priestly order today and then laymen. Uh, but in that day, there, there was. There were the priests and there were the laymen, and he's a layman. He's not a priest. He's not a prophet. He's a layman. In fact, 
he's called the son of a man named Hekeliah. I mean, that's about all we know about his background. The son of Hekeliah, whoever Hekeliah was. We are told in verse 11, his occupation. I mean, I didn't read it to you, but let me read it to you now. He says right at the end, the last sentence of chapter 1, now I was a cupbearer to the king. You say, a cupbearer? A guy who was a cupbearer wrote an inspired book? In our minds, when, when I hear the term cupbearer, if I didn't know what the Bible taught, I'd think, a dishwasher? You know, he's a busboy? Um, he's a waiter? I mean, there's nothing wrong with that, but usually waiters don't, you know, don't write inspired literature. But uh, we would only think that way if we didn't understand the Old Testament concept of a cupbearer. It was not a dishwasher. It was not a busboy. It was not a waiter, not a server. The term cupbearer does not sound impressive, but it was a very, very significant job in ancient days. In ancient times, a cupbearer was in the position and privilege and responsibility of few men. What he did is he tasted the food before the king did and drank the, the uh, liquids, whatever the king would have, the beverage, before the king did to make sure it wasn't poisoned. That was a cupbearer. That was a very prestigious position. He made sure that if anyone was to die, he would die, not the king. He laid his life on the line for the king every day, many times a day. And because he, he did this, a tremendous bond developed between a cupbearer and a king. He had access to the king like nobody else did. And if you couldn't trust your cupbearer, who could you trust? Uh, tremendous ministry of confidentiality. And, and we know from ancient records that cupbearers were esteemed people. They were esteemed people to the king. He, he had great influence with the king because he had such access to the king. So that's the first thing that makes this un, unusual. Nehemiah was just a layman. He was a cupbearer. Secondly, Another unusual aspect of the book was that Nehemiah's book opens up with Nehemiah living not in Israel, but he lives in a place called Susa or Shushan. And you know what that is? That's the capital of Persia. That's the capital of the empire of Persia. Now, um, what's he doing there is the question that we have to ask. The year is about 446 B.C., and it's in the month of Kislev, which would be uh, in, in our calendar... Uh, November, December, be kind of November, December. So it's uh, it's it's then now in order to stand, uh, understand why Nehemiah, a Jew, lived in Persia and was the cupbearer to a Persian king. We need to know a little bit about Jewish history. So let me take you back in time. First of all, the history of the Jewish people began and I would mark this down. You're going to get a brief lesson in Jewish history and it'll help you chronologically to understand this. The Jewish people in their history really begin about the year 2000 B.C., approximately, with the call of, of Abraham. Abraham is called out in about 2000 B.C. Then about a thousand years later, the, the uh, Israel becomes a world power under the leadership of King David and his son, King Solomon. They were a world empire at that point. That was the height and has always been the height of Israel's history under David and and Solomon. But after Solomon's death, a very tragic thing happens to the nation. It divided. It split in two. There was civil war. And so you have two, two kingdoms now rather than one. You have a northern kingdom which consisted of the ten northern tribes of Israel. And they're called Israel. 
Then you have the southern kingdom, which consisted of the two southern tribes, Judah and Benjamin, and they're called Judah. So you have Israel in the north, you have Judah in the south. It was an absolutely spiritual low time in Israel's history, and God had forewarned them in the law, if you obey me, I will bless you physically. In the Old Testament, blessings were often physical. That's not always the case today, but that's an Old Testament truth to the people of Israel. But he also said, if you rebel against me and you disobey me, I will curse you and I will discipline you. And the ultimate discipline is that I will drive you from the land. You will go captive. In fact, we we read this in Deuteronomy 28. And if you understand Deuteronomy 28 and that principle about blessing if you obey Israel, cursing and and, uh, discipline if you disobey, you'll understand much of the Old Testament. Much of the Old Testament hinges on Deuteronomy 28. We would probably call it the Palestinian covenant. Okay? The the Deuteronomic covenant. Deuteronomy uh, 28, just listen, verse 49 and following. The Lord will bring a nation against you afar from the end of the earth as the eagle swoops down, a nation whose language you shall not understand, a nation of fierce uh, countenance who shall have no respect for the old nor show favor to the young. Moreover, it shall eat the offspring um, of your herd and the produce of your ground until you are destroyed. You understand this is an agricultural society who also leaves you no grain, no wine or oil, nor the incense of your herd or the young of your flock until uh, they have caused you to perish. And it shall besiege you in all your towns until your high and fortified walls in which you trusted come down throughout your land. It shall besiege you in all your towns throughout your land, which the Lord your God has given you. In other words, devastation. Someone from afar is going to sweep in, going to take you captive, going to destroy your cities, going to destroy your society as you know it. And this is precisely what happened. Tragic times in Israel's history. In 722 B.C., the Assyrians, not the Syrians, but Assyrians, uh, attacked the ten northern tribes and took them into captivity. Israel, from that point on, the northern empire never existed as an empire. Again, never existed again. Now, God was gracious to the southern kingdom. He gave them about 200 more years to repent, and he sent prophets, most notably Jeremiah, who called them to repent, and they would not. Disobedience, rebellion to the law, uh, a horrible time, idolatry. And so, since they refused to repent, about 200 years later, in 586 B.C., Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians, no longer were the Assyrians the leading empire, now it was Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians attacked Israel, specifically Jerusalem. They did the worst thing that could ever happen to the Jewish people. They destroyed the temple. They destroyed it. Solomon's temple uh, was absolutely destroyed. And uh, the city was destroyed. And then they transported just about all of the people in in three transportations back to Babylon, which was 800 miles away. It took them as slaves. They put, they put actually through their skin hooks and hooked them together and marched them 800 miles to Babylon. And you want to just feel for these people and, and what they went through. And though the nation mourns because of the, the death of their leader, it is nothing like, like that. Let me read to you Psalm 137. And uh, one, of the saddest, one of the saddest psalms in all of the Bible. Psalm 137 
and uh, speaks of, of their weeping. By the rivers of Babylon, there we sat down and wept. When we remembered Zion, upon the willows in the midst of it, we hung our harps. For there our captors demanded of us songs and our tormentors mirth, saying, sing us the songs, one of the songs of Zion. And they answered, how can we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? If I forget you, O Jerusalem, may my right hand forget her skill. May my tongue cleave to the roof of my mouth if I do not remember you, if I do not exalt Jerusalem above my chief joy. Remember, O Lord, against the sons of Edom, against the, the, the day of Jerusalem, who say, rather than he goes on and uh, speaks of, of their, their extreme bitterness of being in that situation. Just before the book of, of Ezra, we have Chronicles, Second Chronicles. And it says in Second Chronicles 36, verse 18, and all the articles of the house of God, great and small, and the treasures of the house of the Lord and the treasures of the king and his officers, he brought them all to Babylon. Then they burned the house of God and broke down the wall of Jerusalem and burned all its fortified buildings with fire and destroyed all its valuable articles. And those who had escaped from the sword, he carried away to Babylon and they were servants to him and to his sons until the rule of the kingdom of Persia. And so... What has happened now is Babylon came in and they swept Judah away. But how long did the captivity last? Jeremiah predicted in Jeremiah 25 that it would only be 70 years, not forever, just 70 years. And what the writer to the of Chronicles is telling us that eventually Babylon was overtaken by another kingdom, the Medes and the Persians, who we just call the, the Persians, and they became the leading empire. And... Uh, and God raised up the Persian Empire primarily for one major reason, as God was sovereign and is sovereign in history, and that is that the Persian king, Cyrus, would make a decree that would send the Jewish people back home. He would say, return. And it wasn't because he was particularly a lover of Jewish people. He wanted It was for political reasons. He wanted somebody in that area of the world because Egypt was acting up against Persia, and he wanted some friends. So he was kind to the Jews and said, go home. And we read this in verse 22 of Second Chronicles. Now, in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah, and he means Jeremiah 25, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he sent a proclamation throughout his kingdom and also put it in writing, saying, thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all of the kingdoms of the earth, and he has appointed me to build him a house in Jerusalem, which is in Judah, whoever there is among you of all his people may the Lord his God be with him and let him go up go home and so the Jews could return and they did return in at three different times under three different leaders Nehemiah was one of those leaders but he was not among the first people to return to Jerusalem we'll learn more about that background on the next verse by verse thanks for joining us today Pastor Steve Kreloff is just getting us started in a study of a man named Nehemiah and the book that bears his name. Pastor Steve has been serving for more than 28 years at Lakeside Community Chapel in Clearwater, Florida. These daily radio Bible classes are adaptations of his messages produced by Verse by Verse Ministries. We are a faith ministry and depend on the gifts and prayers of our listeners who, we hope, are first faithful to their own churches. 
If you would like to listen again to today's broadcast, it is available at our website, versebyverseradio.org. We also have a free newsletter, and we offer a free podcasting service. That's versebyverseradio.org. To listen to the entire message Pastor Steve started with today's lesson, call us at 727-239-0306. You can get the audio on either a CD or cassette tape. That number again is 727-239-0306. Lakeside operates one of the finest Christian schools in the area. If you live nearby and are looking for a school, visit our website, lakesidechristianschool.org, or call us at 727-461-3311. You can also send an email to info, I-N-F-O, at lakesidechristianschool, all one word, dot O-R-G. Richard J. Mao, president of Fuller Theological Seminary, in his book Uncommon Decency, quoted Max Dupree, who got to the heart of things, with his succinct statement, The first responsibility of a leader is to define reality. Leaders need to have a good picture of what is really going on around them, and they need to help others take an honest look at this reality. Next time on Verse by Verse, Pastor Steve will give us more of the historical background of Nehemiah's memoir. We will begin to see how important it was that Nehemiah had a clear picture of the problem in Jerusalem. He needed that as a foundation 